Hey guys, welcome back to Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast. My name is Janie Charlo, one of your hosts. And on this podcast that you will hear coming up, we are talking about human trafficking. And uh, we interview this amazing young woman who had an incredible story of survival and just overcoming and beating the odds and uh, where her story of human trafficking and sex trafficking at a very young age, um, the age of seven, she was being sold to men for sex by a family member. And um, we get a chance to interview her and we get a chance to um, dig deep into her book. She is the author of A Diary from Hell, A Child Being Sold in America. And um, if you really want a firsthand account um, on, on what this dark industry is all about, you should grab her book. Um, it's available on Amazon for sure. Um, and this podcast, you know, uh, you know, we love talking about love and spreading light, but sometimes you have to spread light on the dark things that go on. You know, that's how we, we gain awareness and that's how we, uh, save other people. Okay. So the exact number of boys and girls that are being enslaved in the sex trafficking trade is difficult to determine, but I would say that about every 30 seconds, another person becomes a victim. And this is a very global concern and it's a billion dollar industry. There's billions of dollars involved in this, this trade. Okay. Um, and, and, when we speak to Teresa, she speaks about her book and her nonprofit right now and um, how you can reach out to her if you yourself are being sex trafficked or if you are also trying to get out of the adult entertainment industry. Because um, sometimes one door leads to the next as Teresa shed light on. And if you, you feel alone and you are scared because there's a lot of fear in this, um, reach out to Teresa, okay? Um, I also want to give you guys the National Human Trafficking Hotline phone number. That phone number is 888-373-7888. You could also text the word HELP to that phone number and someone will get back with you. Also, um, make sure you... Find Teresa on Instagram. I think that it, she said that's her larger platform. Um, and just reach out to her nonprofit, which is Hot's Talon Rouge, which for French means red high heels. And um, in this podcast, she explains, you know, all about her nonprofit, the wonderful things she's doing to help women um, that are in these situations. And guys, please know that, you know, there's human trafficking, there's sex trafficking, there's child trafficking, there's organ trafficking. This is a real, real issue. It's very real. It's a dark, dark thing. And we're here to spread, to shed light on it and um, listen to Teresa's story, share this, give it to someone else who may need to hear it. You know, if you have young teenagers, talk to them, talk to them about these things. It is happening and we can't, um, can't shelter our kids from it. They need to know what's on the other side, just in case they are, 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 you know, 
confronted with some of this. They need to know how to make the right decisions. They need to know how to speak up for themselves, how to reach out to help. All right. All right, guys, um, check it out. I think you will definitely enjoy it. This meeting is being recorded. Hi, guys. Welcome back to another episode of Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast. This is Janie, and you know Russell, co-host. And yeah, so on today's podcast, we're talking about human trafficking. And we have Ms. Teresa Caldwell Jenkins with us. So welcome to the podcast, Teresa. Hi. And Teresa is a survivor, she's a published author, and she is now an activist uh, in regards to human trafficking. And um, she was a victim herself of human trafficking as a child by a family member. Uh, Teresa was kept in a closet and beaten daily. She was left in the care of a family member who took her young innocence by selling her for sex to men at the young tender age of seven. Um, And she's also the author of A Diary from Hell, A Child Being Sold in America. And it's the book is amazing. It has so many layers and we really want to kind of just unpack it today. So, Teresa, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story with us and, um, you know, getting some awareness out there. Yes, thank you for having me. So um, wherever you want to start, you know, just just tell us your story. Okay, Um, I was um, probably I I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, My mother was a heroin and a crack addict. And my father didn't really know where he was at the time or who my father really was. I was told different people were my father. So um, I was born in the 70s, raised up in the 80s in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I was left in the care of a family member. Um, It was a female, and we lived in a very impoverished area of Cincinnati called the Over the Rhine area. Um, Growing up in this household was so difficult. Um, She, the woman we were left in care of, she was an alcoholic, um, very um, barbaric. Um, as a child, we always looked up to a person and she was just very evil and mean to us. She, um, when we were young, she would uh, just take things from us, beat on us. Um, we, we were just verbally abused. Things were thrown at us. Uh, we were put in a closet. Um, she was a woman who she had been to prison before um, for murder. I don't know why we were left in her care, but I guess that was the only person that I guess my mother could leave us with. And as time went on, as I got older, she would make me go out and get money um, by any means necessary. I would have to sell shopping bags um, at the market. We had like a local family market. Um, she would make me get up at the crack of dawn, like 5 a.m. And I'm like six, seven years old. And I had to go down here and sell these shopping bags and bring her money. We had a local grocery store called AMP. And sometimes I would have to stand out there and put people bags in a car for like 50 cents. And it went from there to being sent to different men in the neighborhood 
um, she would set it up where me or and my sister, we would go to different men's homes, have sex with them. And then we would come back and bring her the money. Um, sometimes if we didn't bring her enough money because we were kids, uh, we would lose it or something to that nature. She would beat us and we were put in a closet. Um, sometimes we were allowed to eat. Sometimes we wasn't. The abuse was just horrific. And no one basically like neighbors or anything ever said anything about it. They knew what was going on, but they didn't even like reach out. They didn't say anything because in that time, it was what goes on in your house stays in your house. And we don't get involved. So some of my childhood friends' parents were aware of what was going on and they would say little things to the side to me, but that was all that would take place. Um, sometimes I was allowed to go to school. I didn't learn how to read until I was 12 years old. And when the truant officer would come to the house looking for me, asking why I hadn't been to school, her thing was, oh, well, she just didn't go. Or I was just a bad child. I was just a horrible child. I was called every name that you could ever think of. Um, I was just, the abuse was just mentally and physically. Um, it was just something that I just wouldn't want anyone to endure. Yeah, you mentioned in your book about um, when you were locked in the closet about wanting to take your life. Can you expand on that with the belt? Yes. Um, a lot of times when basically I got used to just being in this closet and when she would put me in the closet, there were like shoes, a lot of shoes or whatever. Cause like I said, we lived in like a poverty area and the belt that she would always beat me with. It was like, I grew this, I don't know, I guess some type of like, I hated this belt. I would look at this belt and it would just bring so much anger to me. So I was just like, I'm just going to hang myself. I just wanted to kill myself. And it was just, it was just a, a, a feeling of just wanting to be away from everything that I was going through. You know, my mother, I didn't know where she was. I didn't know where my father was or really who my father was. So the only way out I felt was to take my life. Hmm. I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's, it's okay. I mean, your story is incredible. So it's, it's totally okay. Um, I want to also read something because I want to unpack that part a little bit just about there's because your 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 story has so many layers in there generationally we you know these are things that we need to look at so you mentioned about he was not a normal grandfather and margaret wasn't a normal woman she hated us because of our mother little bit who was a constant reminder of our real grandmother their sibling rivalry was a result of my grandmother sleeping with gaspar and having a child Making matters worse, Margaret could not conceive children. When she drank, she never wasted an opportunity to remind us how she felt about the situation. The situation. Since she could not hurt my grandmother, she took her wrath out on my sister Cheryl and me. Can you unpack that? Because I was trying to understand who was Gaspar and then it being your real grandfather. Can you unpack that for, for, for us? 
So um, in the book, I wrote about my, by my natural grandfather, my mother's father. Um, my, Margaret was married to my real grandfather and her sister slept with her husband and conceived my mother. Okay. So that and was- Margaret, And Margaret is your aunt, your sister's, your mom's my sister. Grandma, my grandmother's sister. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, she's my grandmother's sister. And that was a sibling rivalry that they had amongst each other. And the anger, whenever she would get drunk, she would always let us know, um, you know, how my grandmother slept with her husband, how my mother came about. Um, just, just so much anger was in her. And that is something that I feel that we see today. Um, in society, you know, um, family members or, you know, have children with each other's husbands or wives or something like that. And the children are the product of that anger. You know, we, we're the ones who receive the abuse. We're the ones who receive all the frustration and we're the innocent children. We had nothing to do with that situation, but that was something that was just, oh, that was a horrible situation to her. Um, even thinking back, um, because I'm an adult now, on some of the things, too, that uh, that stemmed from that situation was my mother. Um, when I had a conversation with my mother, my mother was telling me that from that situation that they never had like this. Her her mother never had a great relationship and that Margaret also as well would abuse her. Mm hmm. Yeah. And I think it's so important. I really wanted to highlight that because it's true. There's a lot of generational hurt and pain. And um, the kids, the, you know, kids come in this world innocent of the mistakes that adults make and, and adults take their wrath and their, their rage out on these kids, especially like in your situation. So. Yes. Yes. Um, I do know that my grandfather he had a few women, you know, um, I just know that, and I found out after he passed that he had other children as well. And he was a man that even though he was married to Margaret, he was considered something like a pimp in the, in the neighborhood. Yeah. I wanted to get to that too, because in your book, you mentioned that Margaret was his bottom bitch. And that's a quote from the book. Right. Um, so I guess let's unpack that too in your situation. Yes. Um, she was, she knew that he had all these different women. He was married to her, but she was aware of him sleeping around. Um, the, the nice cars that he would have. Um, I remember as a kid walking, um, from where we lived to like, probably like two blocks and he hung in this parking lot. And he would have on his nice suit, his hat. He had a cane that had diamonds in it. I don't know if it was real or not, but mm -hmm. he was just a fairly nice dressed man. And he always had money. Um, he was a man that everyone in the neighborhood knew. He had a lot of women. He had nice, big, pretty cars, but I never, ever saw him in the household with us. Mm -hmm. Never. Not one time. I can't recall him ever being in the household with Margaret, me, my sister, I never can recall that at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, quick question. So 
even though you were enduring all this hell in reading the book, it sounded like you still had childhood friends on the street that you enjoyed being around. How were you able to maintain those friendships and even enjoy your friends while all this was going on at home? Those friends were my release. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, sometimes she would send me to the store and that was, I was supposed to go to the store and come back. I wouldn't, I would go and just hang out with my friends. I knew I was going to get beat. I knew I was going to get beat, but my friends, like I didn't get my hair combed like a normal kid. I didn't have nice clothes and stuff like a normal kid. So when I would see my friends, they would try to like comb my hair. We would just be out playing. Mm -hmm. um, eventually it, it would be like hours would go by. Oh, she'll come look for me. And mm -hmm. how she come and I get beat in front of everybody. But it was just, those were my friends. And we built this bond with each other. And it's crazy because even to this day, um, we don't have a close relationship, but we do reach out and talk to each other. But that was a release. And that was something that I just took the risk and I knew I was going to get beat. But I, I, I hey, <laughs> I, I love my friends and they knew what was going on. Their parents knew what was going on. And sometimes they would talk to me and sometimes, you know, like their sister or brother would come and be like, Margaret looking for you. You know, mm -hmm. she got to beat you. You know how kids, mm -hmm. you know, just talk and say certain things. But yeah, um, that was a release and that was something that I just took. It was like your escape of trying to get a little glimpse of childhood. Yes. You know, yes. And, and that was a child's way of protecting their friend. Like, hey, you, you need to go, go. She's coming for you, you know, and um, I'm glad you at least had that. Yes. Because yes. your environment was, I mean, it was, it was a horrible, horrible environment. It also with my friends too, um, when I was able to go to school, um, I, I also on the flip side, I was made fun of, mm -hmm. you know, um, my shoes, my clothes, um, my teeth, um, just, I mean, I watched so many kids like have, you know, on Christmas day, I would look out the window and they would be out there playing with their toys, but I wasn't allowed to go outside. So when sometimes she would send me to the store, you know, they would be like, look, I got, you know, Barbie dolls. I had one friend, my friend Crystal had all the Barbie dolls mm -hmm. and she would always like, let me play with her Barbie dolls because I never got a Barbie doll. Um, just, you know, and those are relationships that I'll never, ever forget. Um, those are times that I look back on that are like, you know, just great things that it, it's a small thing to someone, but to me, it was everything, you know, um, it, 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 it just, even when I think about it now, I'm sorry, it just brings happiness to me because that's all that I had. Even sometimes today, you know, um, I suffer from PTSD and with PTSD, you constantly remember, you constantly go through the trauma over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And at times I think about, you know, just the small things that I did have as a kid, like um, 
we had a, uh, I went to Washington Park Elementary and we had a pool and so we would climb the fence and we would go swimming in the swimming pool and she would come. But at that time I, I would go swimming in my clothes, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was just whatever. Yeah. And the police would come sometimes or whatever, but those are little small gems that will stay with me. And they mean a lot to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And my friends would take up for me when people would talk about my clothes and my shoes and stuff like that. Yeah. You yeah, mentioned there was, there, was a, there was another part also in the book where you were like across the street from some type of symphony hall and how you would like fantasize of one day, you know, being yeah. inside of a music hall, like how that was another escape for you. Um, it was music hall. Um, music hall in Cincinnati and the um, I remember cats and the uh, Cincinnati orchestra they would be like on the outside of the music hall I don't know if you've ever seen this structure it's a very beautiful structure and they would sit outside sometime and practice and the neighborhood kids would go over there and we would talk to them and sometimes they would let us touch their instruments and they would play and tell us different things. So that um, was, I never had been inside music hall, but I knew it was a beautiful building. And my school set, like Washington Park set here, music hall set across the street. And there was also a hotel that set right across from it. It was on 14th street. And I can remember um, just sometimes sitting in my classroom daydreaming about wanting to go in there and just to see how beautiful it was in the inside. You know, the outside was just so appealing. Mm-hmm. I had never been any place, you know, like most kids go to Disney World or their parents take them to different places, um, you know, to go see great movies and stuff like that. I never experienced that. Um, I did go to the movies, but I snuck in as a kid, but I was never taken to a nice place and sat down and had dinner or anything with my family. So I always fantasized about going into this nice place because you would see people that would go in to see the orchestra with nice clothing and stuff like that. So I love um, going to the music hall, sitting on the steps, and I would see the the, um, different, you know, musicians on the side of the building and would talk to them. That was a great thing too. Another escape for you. Yes. And, um, it, it's a prime example of how our environment could just make us feel better. Just changing the environment. And it don't even have to be another state. Just, you know, just going to a hall, a, a music hall and feeling better. Just completely right. feeling better and escaping. Um, I want to bring up Harold in the book. You talked about Harold. Um, and this was, he was an abuser for you. Um, can you just tell us about that? And specifically, so, I I want to talk about how the abuse endured the weekend. And then on Sunday, Harold got his Bible and went on to church. Yes. Um, she would send us with Harold. He would come pick us up on a Friday. Let me tell you who Harold was supposed to be. Um, Harold was supposed to be my mother's father. Supposed to be. Um, so this was supposed to be your grandfather, right? Supposed to be, but that was something that she told us for us to go along with him. Harold owned the dry cleaners. 
um, in the downtown area. I could never tell you how he came about. All I remember is he just popped up one day and she told us that this was our grandfather and we would go with him on the weekends. He would give her money for us. And he would, I was, at the time, I was a little too young. I can remember him raping my sister and my sister just screaming to the top of her lungs. I went in there, uh, I was in the living room and he was in there raping my sister. And I ran into the room and I was just hitting him like, get off of her, get off of her. And my sister, you know, I just held her. She was crying, but it was not like, it was not like a scream or a, a like like really pushing him away from her. It was basically just like screaming, you know, like I, you know, pain. And we just held each other because where were we gonna go? You know what I'm saying? So I held my sister. Harold made me go back in the other room. He continued on doing what he was doing. And after that, he would put us in the car. We would go somewhere. He would buy us ice cream. Uh, he would buy us clothes sometime as well. Um, and then when Sunday came, he would put on his clothes, grab his Bible, drop us off, and he would go on to church. And this was something that went on repeatedly. Um, I do remember another time that my sister had became pregnant. And I believe that it was Harold's baby. I could be wrong, but I didn't never see my sister with anyone else. I having sex with anyone else. Um, I think I was like eight or nine years old. And my sister had became pregnant. And Margaret has said, go downstairs and get the broomstick. Well, the broom. And I'll never forget it was a green broom. It was a wooden broom, but it was painted green. And I went downstairs and I got the broom. It was on the side of the refrigerator. Brought it upstairs. And she made me leave. And I just heard my sister yelling, screaming like a cry I never heard before. Mm -hmm. And probably like 10 minutes later, I didn't hear anything. My sister was laying, I came, Margaret came downstairs. I went upstairs because me and my sister had a close relationship. We went through this together. Mm -hmm. She was like my best friend. And I went upstairs. My sister was laying, there was blood everywhere. And I remember Harold coming to the house and he took my sister to the hospital. My sister was there for probably like three or four days. And me being younger, listening, my sister, was pregnant. I remember them saying that she had to have a D, a DNC. Mm -hmm. And I was, I didn't know exactly what a DNC was, but I do remember them saying that she was pregnant. And looking back and just even as I got older, understanding, I know what Margaret did, mm -hmm. you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that you couldn't understand how God could speak to Harold, but wasn't hearing you. And that was so touching to me, um, you know, especially at a young age, wanting to not understanding why you're even in this situation, why this is happening to you. 
Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, when, when Margaret would put me in the closet, a lot of times I would dream about like flying across this water. I would see big bodies of water and nobody really taught me about God, but I, I just, I guess as a kid, I, I guess you hear people, I would pray and I would talk to him and I would ask him, you know, like, why, or why am I here? You know, why am I going through this? You know, why can't I be, I can't say their names, but why couldn't I be my childhood friends? Like, why couldn't you give me a mother like them? Why did I have to be in this situation? And I'm like, this man gets up every day and go to church after he's sitting here sexually abusing me and my sister. And, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, why hasn't he dropped dead? Or why, why is it that he still gets up and he goes and, you know, live this life or, you know, just anything I'm asking God, like, why? And we're here going through this. Like, I don't understand. So I, I became angry and I felt like he wasn't listening to me. I felt like, you know, it was just, we were just put here to just go through this. And the anger and the emotion became so strong that I, uh, along with the suicide, I, I thought about taking Margaret's life. I, I started sitting up planning ways to do it. You know, um, I found out that my mother's sister, uh, I don't know the extent of the abuse, but she abused my mother's sister as well. And she fed her, like, she asked for some water, told her to go get some water. She gave her a cup of bleach. I remember hearing, you know, them talk about that. And so I started contemplating on ways to take her life. You know, the anger was just so, it was just built up inside me because I didn't have nowhere to go. I didn't have nobody to turn to. I didn't have no one to call, you know, like we go to tell, like we're going through this and can you come and get me? Can you help me? So I was just angry at God. Like, how can you allow children to experience this? Like, is this, and I looked at her as being the devil. Mm. I really did. So yeah. I, I was very angry. So question in reference to Harold taking your sister to the hospital. What was told to the medical staff and how bold of him to even appear there with her, knowing what he had been doing? Yeah, I, I can't, I don't know. I was young. I, I can't answer that question. I don't know what happened. Um, but I do know that my sister stayed in that hospital for three days. And she came back home. I remember because when my sister was in the hospital, I had to like clean, you know, get everything prepared for her for when she come home. I don't know. I really feel like that state failed us. Um, I feel like they failed us a lot. I remember my arm was broken um, and I was taken to Allen House and I stayed there for a little bit and they sent me back to her. Um, I remember my teacher, Miss McEnany, I'll never forget. You know how sometimes teachers go to hug their children and she went to hug me because she would whip us with extension cords too. 
And I had like, she had like, it was basically almost raw meat on my leg where she had whooped me. I still have scar to this day. And Miss McEnany went to give me a hug. I think I was in like the third, third grade. And when she hugged me, you know, when you hug a kid, she hugged and I was like, and she was like, what's wrong? And um, I was like, it just hurt. And she took me to the bathroom. And when she took me to the bathroom, she pulled my clothes down, she saw it. And she took me back to the room. And I think that time she did contact um, family services. I think I remember her contacting families. I think they came to the house or something like later on that day. Um, yeah, I think she did contact family services. And I recall you saying in the book that even um, there was a fear of you telling the truth, um, even when you were in uh, in the custody of Child Protective Services and they asked you what was wrong and you would just blame yourself. You would just say, I was a bad child um, yeah. because of the fear there, the fear that was programmed within you from Margaret. Yes, um, sometimes when we would be like watching television and she would just like, if something came on television, uh, I remember one of her things that she liked to watch was, I think it's All My Children or something. Yeah, the soap opera or whatever. And things would be like going on or whatever. And out of nowhere, she would be like, you, I can't really say, but she would be like, you little red bastard, you were just the F throw it away. Like it would just be out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And she would throw something at me and she would just start saying, you just a F throw it away, a, you know, a F throw it away. And I would just be looking at her and she'd be like, oh, you looking at me? Oh, you looking at me? Mm -hmm. And it would just turn into like just a horrible situation. And so I started feeling like, okay, so maybe all of this stuff is my fault. You know, maybe it, it's my fault because my mom and my dad is not here. Maybe I did something wrong. And so maybe I am this bad kid, you know, I, and I would try to think like what it was that I would do wrong. So when she would send me to the store sometimes, I would take like some of her change and I would buy a card, like a greeting card that say, I love you. Because I felt like that, you know, um, maybe if, if, maybe if I did something like that, maybe she would stop. Maybe it would prove to her that I wasn't a bad child. Yeah. Um, and that was sometimes turn out to be a disaster because she would take the card, tear it up, She'd be like, you spent my money. You spent my money on this. You know, um, I, I just did everything I could to, you know, try to please her at times. And sometimes it would work. Sometimes it wouldn't. Yeah. So fast forward, I know you eventually escaped. You eventually was able to leave. And I know you pretty much was on your own for a little while. Um, tell us about that, you know, just kind of living out there by yourself. Tell us a little bit um, about that. I had ran away. I got away. 
And it was crazy because I wasn't that far away from the house. There were abandoned buildings that were like around mm -hmm. um, the corner and they had been abandoned for years. So I stayed in the buildings. My friends knew where I was. The police was looking for me. Um, we had a, a store called Kroger's on Vine Street. And I would go to the Kroger's and I would steal food. Sometimes my friends would like, you know, they would see me or whatever. They'd give me like bags of chips. There was a store that was down the street from the building that I stayed on Elm Street called My Bells. It was a little candy store. And I would go in there sometimes and they would just give me like candy cookies or whatever. They seen that, you know, my, my hair was never really combed. So that wasn't something that, you know, would be like something that would stand out. Um, my clothes wasn't always the best. And it was just sleeping in an abandoned building. Um, I just, I felt like I was free. I was scared at times. Um, it was rats. It was sometimes dogs or whatever. Um, you know, I just did what I had to do. I was scared a lot of nights. Um, and you know, I can remember having a little small area to go to the bathroom in. Um, all of it was just something that was mental, that really, to some, it would be a horrible like thing to go through. But I was at peace. I wasn't getting beat on anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't being cussed out anymore. The darkness I was used to. So that wasn't something that was hard for me to get past, but it was just being, feeling like I was free, even though I was in a nasty situation, a trifling situation, but I still felt free. Yeah. Um, I just, every day I would go to this Kroger's, I was still, and they kind of, the people that were at the Kroger's kind of knew me a little bit because remember I had to stand at grocery stores to put people bags in the car. So they really didn't kind of know what was going on, but they kind of in a way did mm -hmm. because there was this man, Mr. Mr. Slim. I remember him um, seeing me one day. And I think he was the one who told her where I would, like I seen her up at Kroger's or something because he said it to me too. He was like, you know, you know, your, um, your, your mama looking for you because we would call her mama. Mm -hmm. And I was like, she not looking for me. He was like, yes, she is. She's been looking for you, you know, and I would get on away from there. There was an ice cream store across the street from there. And it was this girl. Um, it was black owned. I remember that. Um, and I would go over there and stand at the window sometimes. And um, she would come out sometimes and talk to me. She was a little girl. I can't remember her name, but sometimes her grandmother would give me a free ice cream mm -hmm. i would walk just walk uh cincinnati's not a real big city but i would walk the streets you know um walk around just everywhere just walking mm -hmm. you know when it started getting dark i knew i had to go back to the building um i had met uh, two other girls um in the streets that um were on the run and uh one of the girls um, I guess that was her MO or whatever. And she was teaching me how to do other things like steal clothes out of a, a store that we had uptown. Um, and 
you know, I, I just survived. It I survival. Did I yeah, to. it became survival. Yeah. So how did you get, because you are then at 19, you ended up in Atlanta. Um, tell us that transition. And then you, you met someone here in Atlanta at 19 in the book named Tony that introduced you to adult entertainment. And then let's move into your activism and how you got that part. How you so, got to that part. So I ended up um, getting caught at Kroger's stealing and they sent me to, well, they contacted Margaret or whatever. And I can remember Margaret coming, telling me that I needed to tell these people that I needed to come back home because she was getting a check, like a welfare check. And I wasn't doing it. You know, I, I was just like, I'm not going back, you know, having that taste of freedom and not being abused while I was living on the streets. It changed my mentality to, I can do this on my own. So I um, ended up being sent to Beach Acres which was a Protestant orphan home. And it was, um, it was like a, it was a, it's like a big old college, uh, I guess what campus and they had different cottages. So we all stayed in these different cottages. Um, I ended up probably staying there for like three and a half years. I went into a foster care. Uh, the first foster home I went to, um, still keep in contact with my foster brother. Um, love them to death. Uh, I stayed there for a while and I ended up running. Then they sent me to another foster home, um, which I kept Did in contact. Did you run just to get away or were you having some issues in that home? I wasn't having any issues in the home, like really bad issues. I think it was more of not being used to a home environment. Um, love Carol to death, not being used to a home environment, um, not being used to structure, not being used to, you know, getting up, you know, sitting at the table, eating, not being used to just seeing a family. Like they were a family unit. And when I would see that, I would get angry. Like I would get so angry and so upset. And, but I took to my foster brother, he was really like, at first I thought he was the meanest person because he really didn't say too much. It was another girl that was there and um, she had an adopted daughter and he kind of was just like, you know, like who, you know how young, young boys can be, but he had a dog and I loved the dog. And so that's how we connected through the dog and ran from there, um, went to another foster home where it was just me and her. And at that foster home, I kind of like flourished a little bit. I, I, I think because she was able to give me that one-on-one -on -one attention and there was just, it was just her. I had no other kids around. So I kind of flourished a little bit. I went to school. My grades started getting better in school um, because I was behind because I didn't learn how to read till I was 12. Um, and they, the system came in and said that her relationship with me, like she was just like, I guess they were saying that she was too close to me. So they removed me and put me in back. I went back to a place called Lighthouse. I was there too. Lighthouse was a runaway shelter. 
And Lighthouse, I was just like, I got to get out of here. So during the day when you're supposed to be at school, I went back to where I'm from and I met a guy and he was older than I. And I was just like, hey, I'm going to do what I got to do to get up out of here. And I had a couple of girls were there and they were talking about being emancipated and they were telling me about it. Like, you know, you have a baby, you can get emancipated and they can't do anything to you. And I'm like, for real, you can have, a, you know, I didn't know anything about having a baby. Mm-hmm. So um, I met this guy and I really didn't know too much about him. And I was like, uh, in my mind, I'm like, I'm gonna have sex with him so I can get pregnant so I can have a baby so I can get away from all this. Mm-hmm. I ended up getting pregnant with my oldest son and I'm, they, I'm, I'm still at the lighthouse. I'm getting bigger. I'm getting bigger. And so my mother had a cousin and I ran from the lighthouse and I ran to her house. I really didn't, I kind of remembered them when I was younger, but not too much. So I ended up starting going over there and the police came and got me. And when they came and got me, uh, I think I stayed on the run probably like four or five months. By that time, I think I was eight months pregnant. They came and got me and they put me in a, um, it was like um, assisted living. Cause I was only, uh, I was 16 when I got pregnant. It was assisted living. So they put me in assisted living and in assisted living, they give you like an apartment. It's furnished. They had like, I remember they had cameras. No one could come visit, but you had everything that you needed, crib, food, you know, they would give you everything was paid for by the state. And I stayed there for a while and I ended up leaving there. I got um, an apartment in a project. I met this guy, an older guy, and he was telling me like, you know, I know how you can make some money. And I'm like, okay, what I need to do. And um, he gave me drugs. So I started selling drugs. Um, I was standing out there day and night. I would have my son in the stroller. What drugs uh, were you selling? Crack cocaine. So I started selling drugs and I would be out there day and night selling drugs, you know, and I, I mean, as a kid, I was always taught that I had to go get the money. So that was the mindset that I had. I got to go get this money. So I did what I had to do to make sure me and my son had so I ended up doing something that was really crazy. Uh, the guy, a couple of guys in the neighborhood was like, you know, uh, we can show you how to get more money. So I committed uh, something that they call identity theft. And uh, I was doing it, you know, I had never been in trouble like as an adult or whatever time, you know, my son was getting older, still living in this project. And I'm a product of this environment. Like I'm selling drugs. I'm standing on the corner. I'm walking up and down the street. I got my son. I'm, I'm buying jewelry because that's what I saw. I'm buying jewelry, gold necklaces. I never got a car because I didn't know how to drive, but I'm doing everything that the environment tells you that is everything, like everything that they glorify. I'm doing it. You know, um, I ended up getting into some trouble. 
And I met a, another guy. It's all about men, as you can hear. I'm just always guys, guys, guys. And so um, at, by this time, I, I was pregnant with my second daughter. And I mean, with my second child, I'm sorry, with my daughter. Mm-hmm. And so the police came to the house. And when they came to the house, I wasn't there, but he opened the door. They had issued a warrant for my arrest for identity theft. I took on um, this lady's identity. She was a doctor. So I went on a run. I went on a run to Atlanta, Georgia. Um, got there, was standing in a hotel. The money that I had, you know, this guy, he wasn't working or whatever. Um, I wasn't working because I had a warrant. The money was going low. Mm-hmm. And so... We couldn't pay for the room. And I'm sitting out here like, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And my son used to always run to this lady. And she was real pretty. And so she was asked, she just came, she's like, what's wrong? You look so upset. And I'm telling her like, you know, I, I don't have the money to pay for my room. I got to figure out what's going on. And we vibe with each other because I could tell she was kind of like from the streets too. And she was like, well, I could show you how to get some money. And I kind of was a little iffy at first. I'm like, but desperate times, desperate measures. So she all of a sudden was like, come with me. And I went with her. She took me to a store called Junk Man's Daughter. I'll never forget. She bought me some shoes. She bought me two costumes. And she took me to um, a club at the time. It was called Little Nicky's. And um, when I walked in, I had never been in a strip club before in my life. I seen all these people naked and I'm like, oh my God, you know, it was just shocking to me because I had never seen that before. And I was like, I got to go to the bathroom. When I go to the bathroom, the bathroom is the dressing room where all the strippers are. And I'm like, oh my God, I just, I was so overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do. And so I come back out. And she was like, you okay? You okay? She had a drink. I'm not a drinker. She had a drink. She was like, you want something to drink? And I was like, no. She was like, you need to drink something to loosen up. Come on, girl, just drink. So she gave me something to drink. And I I just, you know, I'm just there still watching because I've never been in that environment. And it went from there. It was like, you got to do what you got to do. You got these two kids. You know, what are you going to do? and end up drinking more and she took me in the back I got dressed and I went out there and I was just like standing there because I didn't know how to like dance you know like like they do in the strip club and I'm watching the girls and I can remember the first guy he was just telling me like oh you pretty whatever whatever I had never wore like makeup and any of that never had lashes my eyebrows done any of that and um there was a lady that was there she did all of that and guys were telling me I was pretty and they was just giving me money and in my mind I'm like okay this is what I need so this is what I gotta do and that one day changed my life for 18 years I ended up in um that industry and Mostly as a dancer, mostly as a dancer. Yes, I ended up as a dancer. Um, I've seen a lot of horrible things to go on in that whole industry. I've lost friends. 
Um, as time went on, you know, my mindset changed to where I got to get this money. Mm -hmm. I got to get this money. It wasn't the same mindset as a child as I got to get this money. It became where as I was a kid, I knew I had to bring like five, ten dollars. You know, once I got into that industry, it was like, okay, my quota for today is four thousand. You know, I got to get this money. All of it came together because it was instilled in me as a kid that I got to get this money. Mm -hmm. And so as time went on, I just became a natural with it. And as time went on, I started resorting back to the things that I was taught as a child. And women that work with me, they knew, you know, um, what I was out there doing. I was just getting money. I'm like, I got to get money. I got to do whatever I got to do to get it. You know, I lowered my standards. I did things that I regret to this day. Um, I did a lot of things that just, I felt like the childhood basically instilled in me that I just took it into adulthood and being introduced into the adult industry, it all just, mm -hmm. it, it was just all a circle, you know, like one big how did you get out? Like, how did you, after 18 years, what was the breaking point? What was like, this is it? So, um, I had ended up meeting a guy and, uh, he was from Miami. We ended up getting married and he was in the club. He was in the streets too wasn't a great situation. I went through a lot of domestic violence with him. Um, he ended up being sent off to prison. I ended up with my youngest son. And we both had that street mentality. So we're still, we're living in Atlanta. Like this is like the uh, early 2000s. You know, we had a house um, in uh, Stockbridge and African-Americans then at that time wasn't living out there, but he's in the street and I'm in a club. So he had asked me to leave the club, but he was still continuing on doing what he was doing in the streets. So I tried to focus on school. So I went to school. I, while I was pregnant with my son and the whole time, I'm not even paying attention that my daughter is watching me, you know, like, she would do little things like she would come in there with my shoes on my heels. She would say little stuff. I would catch her in the mirror. Like she would be in the mirror acting like she was me. She would be just playing me out or she'll be sitting in her room. You know, I could hear these conversations and I just thought about everything. I never, ever shared with my kids what I went through as a child. And so he ended up going to prison. I um, started trying to do hair and I just wanted better. I just wanted to like a change. I just wanted to get away from everything. So I started going to a church, Dixon Grove Baptist Church in Jonesboro. And I met so many amazing people. Like I met... Oh my God, the pastor was everything. Um, just the different women 
that they were a different caliber of women. They were like women that had been through some things, but they were women who was basically telling me like, it doesn't matter what you've been through. You know, God has a way of doing things where he could change things. And they accepted me and they loved me for who I was. Like I was, I started sharing with them some of the things that I had went through. And, you know, I'm sorry, I get emotional because those women were like something that I had never seen, you know, like I always knew that when you got up to put your clothes on, you got up to put your clothes on because you was looking good for a man. Mm -hmm. You know, they taught me that when you get up to put your clothes on, you look good for yourself. And so I watched them. I saw how they lived. They had jobs. You know, they they were doing well. And so it put a change in me. I'm like, I want my life to be different. I don't want to, I don't want God to come back and I'm sitting here doing all this. You know, I want a life that is pleasing to God. And, and things just start changing for me. Um I got away from that environment. I removed all the friends that I had. I just stopped being around them. I started going to this church. I got in the choir. I started singing in the choir, um, praying, um, just trying to do everything that was right. Mm-hmm. And things just got better and got better and got better, right? So I hit a, I hit a bumpy road. I hit a bumpy road. Um, and when I hit a bumpy road, I went back to the club. And when I went back to the club, that was the worst. That was, it, it was really bad. Um, at that time, I started working at uh, pinups. And while working at pinups, I met a couple of people, a couple of people that are celebrity now. And at the time, we were all hanging around each other in ecstasy was the thing, like, was the thing that everybody was doing. Um, Like I said, I've never been a drinker or anything like that. So I tried it. And when I tried it, I tried it again. And I tried it again. And it got so bad to where I had to turn my kids over to my husband. At the time, he was still my husband, his mom. And... I remember waking up one morning. It was so cold in the house. And they had took the, um, you know, the light, not the, uh, I guess the thing that's outside, what they have, your lights are connected to. The meter. They had took the meter and it was so cold. It was freezing. And I had to take clothes and put on top of my children. And I call, I remember calling, telling her, like, look, I, I need you to get these kids. I I I gotta, you know, I'm I'm not right. Mm-hmm. And so I just remember waking up one day in my car. I had got put out the house, I lost the house, I lost everything. And when I woke up in my car, that was a wake-up call for me. It was like, where do I go? Um, what do I do? And I started thinking about my mother and I'm like, I don't want to be like her. And I saw myself being her. I I mean, it was just like, she had these kids. She didn't have her kids. She was on drugs. She was in the streets, 
you know, and she was like one of the people that, to be honest with you, that I hated the most because of what I went through as a kid. And from that day forward, I decided that I had to get my life together. And so I remember I told you I had went to school. I went and got everything together, went back to my school, you know, telling them that I needed help. They helped me put my resume together, find a job. Um, I ended up staying with someone. They helped me get on my feet. The thing that is so like amazing to me is that I never had to go to no rehab or anything. Mm -hmm. I just completely stopped. I went on and life just got better. It got better. It got better. I prayed. I got back into church. I, I, I kept myself away from these people. I just disappeared off the map. When I disappeared off the map, I went on with my life and I worked. I worked on a relationship with my children because they were angry. I had to share with them what was going on. And when I told them what happened to me as a kid, they were in a state of shock. Like, no, this didn't happen to you. I'm like, yeah, this happened to me. And I ended up showing them pictures and they just were, they just couldn't believe it. Um, and so I was like, I got to tell other people what I've been through so that they can understand how this can happen and how they can come back. You can still go through everything in the world and you can make it out and you can still be a strong person and you can help others. So that became my mission. My mission was to help other people. So I, I remember when I first got Gmail and I was just playing around with it and I saw where you could send emails. So in the draft part, I wasn't like a great writer. I would just, things that would come to me, I would put it in my email and I would email it to myself. And so 10 years, it took 10 years to write that book. Wow. Um, I just did bits and pieces, bits and pieces, bits and pieces. And when I got it all together and I was constantly praying in the midst of all of this, I'm like, God, you know what I went through. I know you never left me. You know, I've been through so I, I'm so amazed that God has not left me. Even though I know he won't just being mad at him some days, cussing him out, telling him, you know, forget you. You just want me to suffer, you know, and then. The next minute, oh, okay, Lord, I'm sorry for saying that, you know, because he has an unchanging hand, you know, and I wrote the book. I was so afraid after I got it all done. I looked at it. And I was so amazed. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and release this book. I know people going to look at me a different way. People going to say all type of things about me. Um, I released it in 2017 on uh, Kindle. When I released it on Kindle, I got an email probably like a month later saying that from Amazon saying that I was number two to Michelle Obama's memoir. And wow. I was like, wow, you know. Look at God. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. And so um, I, I, I put everything in my book. I told the truth, what happened to me. I knew that it was going to ruffle some people's feathers. I knew some people was going to get mad my mother I told the truth yeah and she um has reached out to different tv shows they've reached out to me my mother said that so is she uh, still alive because I know in the book it mentioned that you had heard she had died 
Yeah, I was told that she was dead. Mm-hmm. Um, they had told, I was told that she had HIV and that she had died. That's what I was told. Okay. And eventually um, I found her in uh, 2001. And it was crazy when I found her, it was like three o'clock in the morning on anywho.com. I called her phone and she didn't know who I was. She thought I was playing on the phone with her and she hung up. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and um, it's, it's an amazing book. It is, um, I read it in a day. <laughs> I read it in a day because I was just so drawn in by it. And it's, it's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of layers. So well done, um, self-published, well done. Uh, so it's, it's a great book, you know, go out on Amazon and support her in this book, especially if you have been a victim of sex trafficking, human trafficking, you know, any of that. I mean, it's her firsthand account and, um, I, you know, you just, you can't believe the story. It's almost like, is this a movie? Is this like, does this really happen in America? And, and it's happening. And um can you tell us a little bit about your nonprofit right now? Oh, so um, one of the things that I love when I was a dancer was red high heels. Like dancing eventually became mentally this, when I wasn't doing the other stuff, I would get on the stage and I didn't even see the people out there. I love to put on these red high heels and I would just dance. And it just became like where I would disconnect myself from everything that was around me. And it it, it was like, even though it wasn't, how can I put it? Some people, when they dance, it's more of like you trying to be sexy for the person that you're in front of. But there's was some it another dance. escape for you. Was it another escape? Yeah. Okay. It was another escape for some of us. We dance and we put up, it's an art. Mm. So it became an art for me and it was another escape. And I love to put on some red heels. Like that mm. was like my thing. So when I created the nonprofit, I thought about what other women were going through with human trafficking. You're on the streets, you know, shoes. Shoes is a thing that that is so connected to everything. Your feet, you're on the feet, you're on the street, you're moving. Your feet, you got to get this money. You got to go here, you got to go there. And so I named the nonprofit Utu La Rouge, which is French for Red High Hills. And my nonprofit, um, we've helped a lot of um, women. Uh, I raise money for different organizations. And when I I try to do a lot of my my fundraising in private um the reason being is because when I was helped I was a little embarrassed at times I didn't want everybody to know you know that someone was helping me so I do a lot of private fundraising for other agencies and for other women um I've been blessed that I can walk and see women on the streets I feed the homeless like that's my escape because I know what they've been through and I know what they're thinking. I know I can connect with them. You know, um, I remember doing uh, when the pandemics first started, my biggest thing was the water to the homeless people. 
I went down to the bridge um, right there, 75, right there, 75, um, mm -hmm. when you go in, like, uh, under the, the main part, we, uh, what is that? <laughs> By Grady. Yeah, down there somehow. And it was a lot yeah, of people down there. Yeah, they had no water. So a lot of people were so concerned, like, oh, well, coronavirus and all that. And I'm like, I'm going to give these people some water. Mm -hmm. So I had got all this water. I went down there and a lot of people were afraid to take the water. So I started having conversations like, what's going on? That's when I found out that there are a lot of people that are living up under those bridges that are being sex trafficked. Mm -hmm. and they're being exploited there are a lot of homeless people that you got people out here that will take them make them do sex acts take pictures film them um for food oh it's a lot of craziness that you would not believe wow. um and that's why we want to shed light on yeah on the darkness of it what are some things that we should look out for as parents, as communities, as teachers, as healthcare providers um, on children that could be being sex trafficked? You know, what, what are the things we should all be looking out for? One of the main things that I find when it comes to human trafficking and sex trafficking that a lot of parents don't pay attention to are the children's friends. Um, you, it, it is so articulate the way that uh, people that are in this industry, how they move. They will use their cousins that are kids or teenagers. They will use family, uh, other family members. They'll create situations, um, birthday parties, get together, sleepovers. Um, before a predator attacks or moves in on a teen or a child or even an adult, they always watch them. They watch them, they watch their moves, they watch how they, they speak, they think. Um, that's something that you really have to pay attention to. Uh, and even our family members, as we know, you have to uh, just be aware of everything that your children are doing, especially social media, um, whoever they're hanging out with, going to school with, um, even, the, even the, uh, the teachers, even the clergymen, it's sad to say it, but we've seen that they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like certain scenarios and certain situations, I know with my kids, they were never allowed to go and spend a night over anyone's house. I don't care who it is. They can come and see you or we can all go together, but they can't, you know, there's no spending a night over no one's house. And even though my daughter is 28 years old, I'm still in her business. Um, you know, uh, you got a lot of relationships out here now where there are women that are the predators and you have to just, you know, pay attention to that. Remember back in the day, a female was that, that female that was, oh, so sweet. And if you had a problem, the kids always ran to the women. Well, now there are a lot of women predators. There are a lot of women that will get you or your kid and they will bring you to a man. You know, that's what they use. Um, we have to be careful even with the type of music. Uh, just different organizations because every organization is not right. Some of them are just mirrors to what's going on behind. Mm -hmm. I learned that too in the adult industry. Um, just, <laughs> you would be surprised how it's so easy to just sex sales everywhere. 
Mm-hmm. And you will be surprised how easy it is to meet a person and talk to them in 15 minutes. You will see that they're on a whole different level. Um, they are into some things that you just wouldn't imagine. You know, Atlanta, we have earwax. We have all those different, you know, clubs or whatever. And those are like secret doorways to other lifestyles. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the parents as well, they need to basically like just sit down and have conversations, make sure that they, they open up that leeway to where a child will feel comfortable to tell them anything. You know, that's one thing that me and my daughter, we have a relationship like no other. Um, I was dating a guy and a guy gave my daughter a hundred dollars and he didn't tell me my daughter in front of him, mom, he gave me some money. You know, we have that type of relationship. And I'm like, what are you giving my daughter money for? You don't need to give my daughter anything. I give my daughter. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just making sure you have that type of relationship with your child and believe your child. Don't ever make them feel like that they're lying. Mm -hmm. You know, investigate, you know, investigate, investigate, investigate. Always believe your kids, put them first. Um, Never make them feel like they're an inferior or they're lying or that they're making something up. Because at that very moment, that's when you can lose that trust forever. Mm-hmm. Russell, did you have anything? Wow, I'm like sitting here speechless. But I, I do, I do want to add something. First of all, I commend you for being so brave to tell your story. Thank you. I'm sure it's going to help thousands, if not millions, of people. And and people have to take this serious. We've mentioned it several times on the podcast that there are a lot of people popping up missing. Oh, yeah. Women and children. And that this human trafficking thing has reached epic levels. Uh, It's estimated that it generates some $200 billion annually. And, And there's different types of trafficking different types of human trafficking. You have children trafficking, you have sex trafficking, you have organ trafficking, which is pretty big. I'm talking about, you could Google like what kidneys and hearts and melanin is being sold for in the black market. Uh, You have forced marriages, you know, so there's there's a lot going on. People have to pay attention. You know, Janie and I are, are parents as well. You know, we have children that we're concerned about and, you know, people really, really pay attention. And Teresa, once again, I commend you for your strength, you know, your story. The the book was captivating. We couldn't put it down. That's all we could talk about because it it really just, it takes you there. You know, it was like, I felt like I was in the closet with you when you tell the story. So once again, thank you. Thank you. Uh, One other thing I wanted to add, um, and I heard you say, um, Ms. Janie, that you were in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, how. are you an Atlanta native? No, but I've been here for about 17 years now. Okay. Yeah. Um, One of the um, areas that I always um, connected myself with was Stewart Avenue. I don't know if you guys ever, um, because that's where the club, Stewart Avenue was a very affluent area for human trafficking. Um, Chocolate City was across the street. A lot of these, the building is still there, Nikki's. The building is still there. Um, but one of the girls, I'll never forget this. Um, she had came to me. She was like, girl, I need to, um, she was like, you got an ID? And I was like, yeah. She was like, let me use your ID. I'm going to go turn this trick real quick. I'll be back. 
I said, okay. I gave her my Atlanta, well, I didn't have license, ID. And probably four days later, she turned up with her head cut off. Um, yeah, behind a building. And they thought it was me. Um, another situation I could tell you was while we were working there, um, a lot of mothers used to come in there with pictures of their children. And I know this is going to be an issue with me saying this, but I'm just being real. They would come in there with pictures of their children and they would be crying. And they would allow them to come back in the back to the dressing room. And they would have pictures of, I'm talking about these little girls are like 12, 13 years old. And they would come in there and they had pictures of their kids and they'd be crying. And they'll go, each one of us, like, have you seen my daughter? Have you seen my daughter? And a lot of times we have. Wow. But you better not open your mouth and say nothing. Yeah. You know, a lot of times too, when we were working in a club, a lot of those girls was there. They were underage. They would, at the end of the night, go back in the back, grab a coat. It could be like 30 degrees outside. They wouldn't change their costume. They'd walk right out the front door and go right there on the corner, right there and go turn tricks. Mm. Another, um, Girl, I commend her so much. That's my, I mean, she is like everything to me. I love her to death. I remember she was being pimped and the pimp had a van sitting in the front. They would leave up at the club, go turn tricks in the van, come back in and go to work. Wouldn't even wash up. Um, I know two other girls that they were pimped. I can't say their names, but right now, <laughs> They doing it like they got their lives together. She became a minister. She has her own uh, clothing line and she married a football player, you know, so they're blessed. You know, the other girl that I was telling you about, she has her own clothing store and God has really like changed their lives. But when we all see each other, we know and we remember, Yeah, you know, it's something that we all share. Yeah. But that that whole human trafficking is just it's something that you just it, it'll blow you away yeah. some of the things that people have endured and what they're going through and what they have done and like in your situation you're you're no longer in survival mode but where are you in your healing where are you with your healing and your forgiveness um in all of this my my life i've come to understand in my life will always, I'm not going to say always be in a stage of not trusting, but I've come to grips to understand that when it comes to healing, I'm, I have to heal every day. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I get up and be, because I deal with PTSD, sometimes I get up and I see Margaret, mm -hmm. you know, at times. Um, I remember they had me on a whole bunch of medication but I stopped taking it. I just changed my way of eating. I don't eat sugar. Mm. I don't drink sodas. I drink nothing but water, fresh fruits and vegetables um, because the medicine just wasn't great. But I know as far as relationships, it's hard for me to have a relationship. It's so hard. Um, lack I have of trust, this, I'm sure. Just not it's a lack of people. It's a lack of trust. And then a lot of people are not going to admit this, but when it comes to black men, I have an issue. Mm -hmm. um, I'm more trusting to a white man than I am to a black man because as a kid, I was being sold to black men and black men were the ones who were 
raping me and were hurting me. I didn't experience that from white men. And that's something that I've had to deal with because I gave birth to two black kings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, I'm dealing with that every day because every black man didn't hurt me. And that's a real issue. That's a real, we talked about that, about just, you know, we've been upside down. Women have not been protected. Black women have not been protected. And it's a real issue. And I totally understand you've never been protected by any black man. Like you said, you were sold to them and they abused you and, you know, whatever. So um, I do pray, you know, every day that you could heal and you could you can get deeper and deeper into those healings because like you said, you are raising two black men and um, you know, and their value is important and they, they should understand the opposite side, the protective side of men and the provider, you know, that is in loving and stuff like that. So that's a real issue. And I'm so glad you brought that up. That's a real issue. It really is. I, I meet yeah. a lot of men and they tell me like, oh, you're so beautiful, you know, this and that. And I'm like, yeah, okay. So what is it that you want? Uh, you know, and so I'm trying to get past that. You know, I'm trying to to learn to trust my brother, you know, because it, there are some great black men out here. I'm talking about awesome black men. I see them every day, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm like, well, maybe that's the way that they feel. For, you know, that person, you know, that woman, she was lucky, you know, and, and, and I, I am an Eastern star. I did want to tell you that. So I do serve along some, some great, you know, brothers that mm-hmm. are awesome men. I have seen it. It's just, I have to put that connection together to say that there's one out there for me. Yeah. I've been single now since December, 2018, and it has been a struggle, um, you know, I and I'm content with being alone now, but I know that I don't think that that's the planet God has for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You yeah. were going to say something? Yeah, I'd like to touch on that. And thanks for being honest about, you know, what you've gone through and, you know, your opinion of black men at this time. But there are some great black men out there. And I can vouch. But uh, I think it ties into, you know, like people touch on black on black violence, right? Yes. You know, like maybe close to 90% of like violent crimes, et cetera, on black people are perpetrated by black people. But if you look across the races, with, uh, the white race, like 85% of white crimes are committed by white people, Latino, across the board, 85, 90%, they're done by their own people, you know, because nine times out of 10, you know, people know their perpetrator. Nine times out of 10, they're in the home, you know? Like during COVID, the saddest part is when people were quarantined, they're probably sitting across the table from their perpetrator, you know? And and it it gets deep. So it's like, we we can't give up on our people. We've been through a lot as a race in this country. You know, we have a lot of healing, you know? For 400 years, we've been tormented, and every time a prophet has come to help us, they were murdered. Like so, but now you know we really have to dig deep, you know, and you know internalize God to the point where we can learn how to save ourselves, right? 
So, but yeah, I think there's definitely somebody out there for you. As long as you continue to heal, you're going to vibrate and bring that type of person to you. You know, when you were down and out and you were vibrating lower, you, you brought in what you were vibrating at. We don't get what we want, but we get what we are. Right. You know what I mean? So there's definitely somebody out there for you, whether they blue, purple, red, green, black, white, <laughs> there's definitely somebody out there. Yeah. That's good stuff. Um, Teresa, tell our listeners where they can reach you, um, how they can support you with your nonprofit, with your book. Let everybody know how they can reach out to you. Well, um, I am on Instagram as Teresa Jenkins ATL. Um, my book is on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target. Um, it's on Take a Lot in South Africa. Um, it's, it's been sold everywhere. Um, it's on eBay. Um, um, you can also Google me, Teresa Caldwell Jenkins. Um, my nonprofit is called Utu La Rouge. We are 5013C nonprofit located in Atlanta, Georgia. Awesome. Russell, did you have anything else before we close out? Yes. Will you please share with them what the hotline number is for human trafficking? So if anybody out there, you know, if you're going through this or you know anybody else is going through this, please reach out to the hotline and offer help. Can you read that phone number off to them, please? I have it if you don't have it. It's yes, the right. National Human Trafficking Hotline number is one 888 3737888. You can also text help to this number as well. Awesome, guys. So, you know, if you okay. you need Teresa's help and confidence, somebody that can relate to you, make sure you definitely reach out to her or the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Okay. Um, that's been another episode of Matters of the Heart and Soul podcast. Um, this podcast is to raise awareness and to awaken humanity to everything that is already within you. Okay. So we appreciate you guys. Please like, subscribe, and share. Uh, support Teresa in her efforts, especially if you suspect anything. And we'll check you guys next time. Take care.